Our Lord is over all. He's above all. Everything that happens in our world, in one very real sense, does not affect Him. He will do what He does. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. In the midst of all the chaos, all the tumult, everything that's going on, we know that our God is in control. So let's pray to Him. Lord, where else would we go? Where else could we go? You are our God. You are our our Lord. You are our Redeemer. You're the one who is in absolute control of everything. And Lord, our hearts do continue to go out to our fellow citizens in Afghanistan who are being misused, who are being killed even as we speak. Lord, we pray somehow that you would bring the Taliban to yourself. We're asking, God, that you would continue to protect, as you will, whoever is in your will concerning uh, protection over there in Afghanistan of our citizens and your people. We're asking, God, that you would lead, that you would guide, and that you would have your will and your way done there. And Lord, now we're asking that you have your will and your way done with us as we open up this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy. We ask, God, that you would help us to understand, help us to apply. May we glorify you in this. Help us to have great attention today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, prophecy is such a big thing nowadays, isn't it? The Lord told His disciples that right before His return, that the world will be extremely wicked. Spiritual deception, apostasy, which is, as we know, falling away from the Lord in massive amounts of people. Wars and rumors of wars, pestilences, famines. And because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. After 2,000 years, it certainly seems like we are at the very end of the last days. How many disasters and lockdowns and vaccines and lost jobs and so much more hit us all almost continually? It doesn't take a brain surgeon if brain surgeons are still practicing nowadays, to conclude that we quite possibly are on the brink of the end of the world as we know it. Tiatwaki, for short. But this kind of predictive prophecy, that at any minute, according to some, the rapture of the church will happen and the great tribulation will begin, gets people's attention. This gives a lot of people assurance that the next big thing on God's prophetic calendar timetable is the rapture of the church. If you're a so-called pre-tribber, you know what I'm talking about. Well, today's passage gives some predictive prophecy about God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 31, we will listen to some of that predictive prophecy, some difficult words, words that will no doubt break many hearts because the predictive prophecy is this, God's people will commit idolatry. God, through Moses, predicts it right here in this passage. So let's begin by hearing Moses as he continues to warn the people about the sin of idolatry in verses 15 to 24. And if you were here last time, you know that Moses began his warning about this wickedness at the beginning of chapter 4. So follow with me, if you will, verses 15 to 24 of Deuteronomy 4. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, Mount Sinai, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water, under the water. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, 
And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We can sum up all of these words that we just heard with a phrase. No idols, no idolatry. A straightforward command given by the Lord through his servant Moses. As we heard, Moses lays things out in detail, didn't we? I mean, it's, it's almost as a word, like so repetitious, so repetitious. No carved images of anything on the earth and no bowing down to the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. And since Moses begins this portion of Scripture by linking it back to what he just said at the beginning of chapter 4, let's briefly review what Moses reminded the people of. For as we know, if God repeats something in His Word, it is very, very, very important. So we better pay attention. First, Moses reminds them of a painful episode in their history. In verses 3 and 4, he told them, you are guilty of idolatry in the past, and look what it got you. 24,000 men were killed at God's hand at the Baal Peor affair. So don't engage in idolatry lest God gives you some personal punishment. Second reason to abstain from idolatry is a positive one, to give a powerful witness to the nations of the goodness of God in verses 5 to 8. Obedience to the statutes of the Lord that He gave them gave the nations a good witness. The nations will be impressed. The pagans will label God's people as wise and understanding. And those who were here last week heard a most pitiful prayer uttered by a thoroughly demoralized pagan worshiper trying to worship his or her god or goddess. This one did not know what the god or goddess wanted, did not know how he or she offended the god or goddess. The worshiper did not know how to get rid of the guilt that he or she felt, but he or she knew that the god or the goddess was angry at the worshiper. But what a relief to know, a great relief to know of Yahweh and how Yahweh had told his people exactly what he wants and how he wants it done. What a difference, you think? Disciplining our children was a third reason to not commit adultery, as Moses told them in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4. As mom and dad stay loyal to the Lord in front of their children and their grandchildren, chances are that their loyalty to God would tend to rub off onto them. In short, spiritual seeds sown by mom and dad are planted in the soil of little sinners. Paul writes about the fact that we all have a sinful nature, even from the womb, right? In, in, in Romans 5, 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, we are recipients, as it were, of a sinful nature. We inherited it from, ultimately, Adam. From the day, parents, that your little one emerged from the womb, you had a sinner on your hand right? Can anybody say amen about that, parents? (laughs) And like the parable of the sower, our kids' hearts are one of four kinds, either hard, thorny, or, or rocky, or good soil. But wouldn't it be most excellent if our kids' hearts all consisted of good soil, and that every one of our kids would follow the Lord? But sadly, We know that such is not the case. But our job as parents is to be faithful to the Lord in front of them and leave the results to God. We fear and we teach our kids about the Lord out of reverence that we have for the Lord. The Lord did not guarantee, sadly, that all kids, all of our kids would be saved. 
Now, certainly as parents, we can be better witnesses. And those of us who have kids that are grown and gone, we kind of look back and sometimes we regret we could have been better witnesses. But each person must respond to the conviction of the Lord's Spirit, no matter what the age, to include our kids and our grandkids. For the truth is, regardless of how our growing up years were, whether yours or our kids, grandkids, everybody's, all of us are accountable to the Lord for how we respond to Him. There are no excuses on that day. We cannot stand before the Lord on that day and say, you know, my mom and dad, and fill in the blank. And that's true for everybody, because everybody is going to stand before the Lord one day. Isn't that true? So now let me underscore three points, though, about the verses that we read in our passage this morning so far. Moses raises the issue of carved images. And so we're going to talk about that for a minute. A carved image, of course, is a statue that looks like a, like a human or an animal or a bird or a fish. This is not haphazardly made. Think of the resources it takes to craft a graven image or have it made. It takes time, it takes materials, it takes skill, and it takes a purpose. And when someone makes a carved image in order to worship it, nothing but the finest of materials can be made with it. The best wood overlaid with silver and gold, the finest of that, and jewels. And when it's ready, a ceremony was performed. One dictionary entry describes it this way. We know from both Egyptian and Mesopotamian records that an idol's inauguration, in other words, going from a mere statue to an idol to be worshipped, requires an elaborate, magical ceremony done at night, that its eyes are opened, that its mouth is washed, and it's endowed with life. This is what they do with those things. These rituals rendered the artwork suitable for the presence of a God. In short, the issue of statues, or even nowadays pictures, really is not wrong in themselves, but it's what one does with them that matters. It's the purpose. But for me, you know, even pictures depicting Jesus are borderline. I don't know about you, but for me, it's kind of borderline. For example, painting Jesus, you know, if you have Jesus, you know, on, on canvas or whatever, with like, for example, a, a, a lamb on his shoulders, you know, that, that's a nice picture. Maybe you've seen a, a picture like that. As nice as it is, it's not a complete picture of Jesus. Isn't that true? See, Jesus is more than a shepherd. He's king of kings. And the opposite can be true as well. If the only picture that we have of Jesus is a king sitting on the throne, then we may have an unbalanced picture there as well. See, we will be missing, as it were, the image of him as like a shepherd with the lamb on his shoulders. In other words, we need to be careful about pictures depicting the Lord, lest we paint an incomplete picture of him, because we cannot capture everything there is about him. Isn't that true? So let's now move to verse 19 of our passage for today for a second. Let's read it again, verse 19. And beware, Moses says, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and you, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Here the Lord, through Moses, tells the people that idolatry is not limited to things on the earth. Worshiping the heavenly bodies is a powerful, universal temptation, isn't it? Think about that, all the stuff that's out there. All the pagans have some sort of a worship of the sun, for example, in their rituals and their pantheon of gods. And even in our day, I think of horoscopes. I mean, horoscopes. <laughs> but these are created things as well the sun, the moon, and the stars. As powerful, though, as majestic as they are, these heavenly bodies ought to turn our gaze away from them to the one who made them. You know, too many people down through the ages, in our day as well, 
Don't take the worship far enough or high enough. David's words in Psalm 19, 1, gives us the proper orientation to the sun and the moon and the stars. Here's what he says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. This is what the Lord has done, and is marvelous in our eyes. Amen? But notice what Moses says toward the end of verse 19. In reference to the worshiping of heavenly bodies, Moses finishes the verse this way. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reflecting on this and trying to make some sense out of this verse, I was a little bit confused and kind of troubled about it. Because it looked to me, though, first reading, that the Lord actually gave the sun, the moon, and the stars to the nations so that they might worship them. But, you know, the best way really to read this with the understanding is that the Lord has given the heavenly bodies to all the nations to include Israel for a twofold purpose. And we saw the one purpose is that the heavens might declare the glory of God. And second, to remember the creation account, where in Genesis 1, 14 and 15, we find these words. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. In other words, the heavenly bodies were not given to the nations to worship. They were given to the nations. Why? As markers for signs and for seasons. Tragically, far too many people turn their gaze downward, don't they? And they begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. But God forbids His people from engaging in that kind of thing. So let me point out a third thing in this portion of Scripture, and it's found in verse 20. Verse 20. Moses directed his words to their heart. He reminds his people of their salvation. The Lord brought them out of extremely difficult times. He describes it this way, as deliverance from the iron furnace. As their Savior and the Lord, He reminds them of who they are and of whose they are. Yahweh, the only true and living God, brought them up close to Himself. He is, they are His inheritance. They are His people. They are His precious possession. He brought them out of Egypt to magnify Himself through them and to glorify Himself among the nations. His almighty power delivered His people. He provided for them. He was and He continued to be faithful to His people. And doubtless, Moses could have gone on and on about God's character and God's power in relation to Israel. But the unspoken question is why? Why, after all he's done for his people, would they want to commit idolatry? As we saw last week, idolatry is nothing more than a disloyalty on par with the husband cheating on the wife or the wife cheating on the husband. In a word, idolatry is spiritual adultery. The Lord wants his people to be true and faithful to him as He is to them. And the same with us. What has the Lord done for you in your life? If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, what links did God go to to bring you into His family? How good has God been to you? How loyal is God to you? And what has the Lord given to all of us who are in the family of God as a pledge? as a deposit guaranteeing, as it were, our inheritance until the day He takes you and me unto Himself, that where He is, we might be also? What did He give us? The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God. Paul tells the church in Ephesus these words in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He says, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with Him, with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee 
of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Lord himself lives within us. I don't see a whole lot of excited faces here. He lives within us. He purifies us. He strengthens us. He comforts us. He completely will save us when it's all said and done. Isn't it amazing? And the command for us, like God's people in Moses' day, is to abstain from idolatry. That's His word to us. Loyalty to Christ is what God wants. And now will be a good time, though, to remind us of the words of a brother and a pastor that I highly respect. His name is Brian Chapel, one of my heroes. I like him, okay. He says that the primary reason that we sin, and specifically why we commit idolatry, hard words to hear, but it's true nonetheless. The reason why we do this is because we love to sin. Now, what does this mean? It means that we're more committed when it comes to choices that we would rather sin than follow God's ways because we can make the choice when we're at the crossroads. Isn't that true? Isn't that right? We forget at that time, at those points, at that crossroads, who we are, and we forget whose we are. And the cure, Dr. Chapel says, is that we replace our love for sinning with a greater love, and that is our love for Christ. He is full of grace and truth. When he saves his people, he graciously and mercifully and patiently deals with us. And he will finish what he begins in us, as Paul tells the Philippians in 1.6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He continues to work in our lives. Our motivation to live in relationship with the Lord ought to be out of love for the Lord as He defines love. The the Lord Jesus is patient toward us, isn't He? He's kind toward us. And so much more as we look at God's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me encourage you. If you're sensing that you and the Lord are out of sorts with one another, if you feel estranged, between you and the Lord, that there's a distance in the relationship, let me encourage you to take up the invitation that God offers all of us to go to the throne of grace and the throne of mercy, that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Let's love the Lord more and serve Him better. Why? Because He loved us first. Now, having seen Moses warning to the people about abstaining from idolatry in verses 15 to 24. Now let's look at the tragedy and the triumph as the Lord predicts what's going to happen to His people in verses 25 to 31. But before we read the passage, I want to paint a picture verbally. How many of us would love to know what's in our future? Somebody would like to tell us, all the details that come into our lives. Some people would, okay. How many of us would follow the Lord if we knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that our lot in life was, was to be filled with pain and suffering as a result of our relationship with Christ? Again, as we know, our brothers and sisters all around the world, they're in that predicament. On the other hand, what if our lives would be, and somebody would tell us, you know, you know, your life is going to be filled with Rainbows and unicorns. Or a a worldwide impactful ministry. You know, would you like to know that kind of thing? You know, for me personally, I don't think I'd want to know. (laughs) I don't really want to know all the ins and outs of the next day, next week, next month. I do want some assurance, though, that when I stand before the Lord, I want to hear, well done. But as we will see, let me ask this question. Did the Lord, through his servant Moses, give his people too much information about their future? You tell me. Let's read together verses 25 to 31. When you father children, Moses says, and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, 
and by doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him and after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. I see here a warning for the people standing before Moses, but far more significantly, a prophetic word that was going to be the future of his people. How horrible to deliberately turn one's back on the one who saved them. This is Yahweh. He delivered Israel out of the pain and the suffering in Egypt. He demonstrated his faithfulness to keep his promise. He provided for them for decades. And now he tells them about their future. If you and I were standing there, what would be going through our hearts and minds after experiencing all of what they experienced? If you were there, what you have experienced? Imagine listening in on a a conversation that a groom and a bride would have right before their wedding day. Jerry, the groom, tells his bride, Ashley, who's all giddy, all excited, looking forward to the day that she'd been dreaming about since she was a little girl. And Jerry says, my bride, I'm so glad for tomorrow. But I need to tell you something. After the wedding and the honeymoon, we're going to begin to settle down and make a life together. We're going to have four beautiful children, two boys, two girls. But somewhere along the line, you will begin to look around. You'll get tempted and then yield to the temptation to become unfaithful to me over and over again. Then I will let you go. I will not let you stay with me as long as you're committing adultery. I will wait for you because I love you and will remain faithful to you. And after a while, you'll come to your senses and you'll turn around and you will realize what you had, and you will return to me. And then I will open my arms and receive you back because I love you, because I'm faithful to you. If you and I were somehow able to listen in on a conversation like that, I would imagine that we would hear Ashley protesting through tears, through a lot of animation. No way! I would never do this. You must be mistaken. I would never do this to you. I pledge my undying love for you. And we know the Israelites standing in front of Moses on that day did not know the end of their story. But we have the benefit of hindsight as recorded in the Word of God. Sure enough, things happened to his people just as the Lord predicted it. And not that he caused it. Why? Because God lives In the future, he's outside of time. God's inheritance became unfaithful to Yahweh. They committed spiritual adultery in his house, in his sacred space, time and time again. He sent prophets to his people many times telling them to repent, but they would not listen. Instead, they doubled down on their sin. And Isaiah diagnosed it correctly when he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And for years, the Lord sent his prophets to warn them about their unfaithfulness, about their spiritual adultery. And finally, the Lord had enough. 
He sent Assyria to the northern tribes to attack them and punish Israel and scatter them all over the place. And later, the Lord sent Babylon and later on even Persia to scatter Judah and discipline them. The Lord kicked them out of His land, Yahweh's land, His sacred space, and Judah was exiled for 70 years. But what happened to them, his people, during that 70 years? God saw his people repent of their idolatry. They longed for their relationship with Yahweh. And in faithfulness to his promise, the Lord brought his people back to his land and restored them. And then look in verses 30 and 31 of our passage, we'll see this reality. So let's hear again these wonderful words of life spoken by the Lord through Uh, Moses. He said, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. What an amazing God is the God of Israel. So let me point out a couple things here. I said before, but it definitely bears repeating here. God knew what he was getting even before he created Israel. Their unfaithfulness did not take him by surprise. And even though he knew what he was getting, and even though he knew his wife was going to cheat on him, the Lord continued to extend his mercy and forgiveness to them. Let's marvel at the patience and the kindness of the Lord. This is the sheer grace of God on massive display here. But what did it take for God's people to receive His grace and His mercy? Repentance. What caused His people to even want them to experience repentance, tribulation, and trial, and pain, suffering? Why did they go through tribulation and pain and suffering? Idolatry. Did it have to be that way? Absolutely not. Again, they forgot who they were. They forgot whose they were. And as with Israel, so it is with us. What does it take for people in the 21st century to receive God's mercy and grace? Same word, repentance and belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you and I are in the family of God, here's the great news, isn't it? Life becomes incredible. No more problems, right? I mean, all of us have, who have received salvation in the Lord, we always, and, and all of us together, we get along with everybody, right? No. Why not? Why is that? You may have heard this little ditty before, but it sort of kind of crystallizes the point. To live above with the saints we love, that would be grace and glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. As it always is, though, in the family of God, relationships are vital. True? Both in our relationship with the Lord and with relationships with one another. For in the relationships, in the context, that's where transformation happens. As I mentioned earlier, the Holy Spirit gives us the will and the power to abstain from idolatry in our walk with Him. But what about one another? How can we claim to walk with the Lord while we have broken relationships with our brothers and sisters? You know, the enemy has done a great job, tragically, at dividing us, setting us at odds with one another, poisonous thoughts spring up in our minds over things that are said or done. And we sometimes hold grudges. And depending on how deeply a fellow Christian hurts us, we have a tendency to say, I don't get mad. Finish it. I get even. The hard truth is that we often offer less grace than God does when it comes to forgiveness. God, through Moses, predicted that his people were going to horribly sin against him again and again and again. 
And in spite of this, he promised that when his people would repent, he would accept them back again and again and again. But now, we who are God's people, who have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, what do we do when others sin against us? Let's be honest. How often is this little ditty true of us, updated to make it fit in the context here? Sin against me once, shame on you. Sin against me twice, what? Shame on me. In other words, we're willing to forgive our brother or sister once, two times, maybe three times. But over and over again, not so much. But here's the truth and the challenge for us in the family of God. How many sins has God, for the sake of Christ, forgiven you and me? How many? All of them. Every one of them. Is there a limit to 1 John 1, 9? And we know 1 John 1, 9 is. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will there ever come a time that God will tell you, you know, you've used up your quota of forgiveness. I'm not going to forgive you anymore because you're beyond the limit. Or, you know that sin that you wanted to confess? You know, even that is too wicked for me to forgive. I'm not going to forgive that. The point is that God has predicted that His people will commit spiritual adultery time and time again. That's what we're talking about here. And He would scatter them out of His land, out of sacred space, until they would repent. And then He would welcome them back in again. But why would the Lord do this grace-filled, mercy-packed thing? Is because God's people deserve forgiveness? They don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. It's because when God's people will repent of the sin of idolatry that they would never ever commit idolatry again? No. The reason the Lord does this, the reason He forgives and restores is because of who He is. And He wants to demonstrate His love and grace and forgiveness. And as He is, so we, as God's people, are to imitate Him. How? Peter came to Jesus one day, and he asked Him, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sinned against me? Up to seven times? You know, back then, they had a three strikes and you're out rule in that culture. You know, if, if somebody sinned against somebody else in that culture, they were obligated to forgive one time, forgive two times. But the third time, done. And so Peter was saying, Lord, even up to seven times? And we know what Jesus' answer was. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. And by the way, if you do the math, it's not after 491 times they could get whammed. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's basically saying as many times as it takes. But this person you might be thinking, it's hurt me too deeply. I can't forgive. I just can't. Can I share some tough love with you? You know, the Lord never put a limit on His forgiveness of you and me, did He? And so we cannot either. And the truth is, when we say, I can't forgive, then one or two things is true. First, as a Christian, with the Holy Spirit living with inside of us, that's a misnomer. Instead of saying, I can't forgive, it's more accurate to say what? I won't forgive. Or second, it may be true that you can't forgive. And if you can't, then you need to examine your relationship with the Lord. Because every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within him or her. Isn't that true? 
Who is the Holy Spirit? He's not just a force, right? Who is he? He's God, the third person of the Trinity living within us. God, who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, lives inside of us as Christians. In other words, a Christian has everything he or she needs to forgive a fellow Christian, regardless of the magnitude, regardless of the quantity of sinful acts toward that brother or sister. Let me briefly touch on the mechanics of forgiveness. Forgiveness means simply this. I give up my right for payback when someone has wronged me. And for the sake of Jesus, I do that. Consider my neighbor, Joe. Now, I don't have a neighbor named Joe, but just play along here. One night, Joe gets drunk and he breaks every window in my house. Let's say that a bunch of wasps comes in through one of those windows that night. And while I'm sleeping, I get stung over and over again. And I almost die of anaphylactic shock. Okay, that's a picture. Joe now owes me big time, doesn't he? He owes me financially. He owes me relationally. He owes me emotionally. How can I trust my neighbor from here on out? And after I recover, I try to contact my neighbor. But he does not answer. You know, Joe is ashamed of what he's done. And so he's kind of avoiding me. And by the way, Joe is a Christian. We've lived next door to each other for years. So what to do? I've got two options. One is I could become bitter at my neighbor and my brother. But that wouldn't be a good thing because as I get bitter, Hebrews 12 tells me that if I have a root of bitterness in my heart, it springs up, what happens to all my relationships? They get defiled. They get poisoned. Or number two, I can forgive. I can let it go. I can give up my right for payback. I can communicate to my neighbor that he owes me nothing. I release him from the debt that he owes me. And so I decide to do that. Well, a couple of weeks after I make my decision, my neighbor approaches me. And he doesn't know what I'm going to do. He doesn't know how I'm going to react to him. And so he comes and he profusely apologizes to me. And I tell him I forgive him. And what I do with all that then, once that transaction's made, once I say I forgive you, I no longer bring it up again ever, ever. Even if, hey, you know, Joe, remember the several years ago that you did this? No, I don't bring it up again ever. Forgiveness transacted for the sake of the Lord because Christ lives within me because the Holy Spirit enables me to do this. But what happens with Joe's drinking problem? He does the exact same thing again. After I pay for my windows and put all that together, Joe does the exact same thing. Wasps come into my room, and I get stung again. I almost die again, anaphylactic shock. What happens then? I do the exact same thing. I release Joe of his debt toward me. That's forgiveness. So after that transaction's happened again, second time, I now have two issues I no longer bring up with Joe ever again. Again, that's forgiveness. I no longer demand right for payback. And I do that for the sake of Christ. Now, of course, you know, we talk about responsibilities, all that kind of stuff, but I'm talking right now in my own heart toward my brother. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 to 5? Here's what Jesus says to us, his disciples. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and he turns and he says, I repent, what? You must forgive him. And no wonder the apostles said, what? Lord, increase our faith. 
But why do we do this? Why would we do this? And why is forgiveness such a big deal? It's been said, we are never more like Jesus than we forgive others who have wronged us. Let me make this personal. I am never more like Jesus than when I forgive someone who has wronged me. See, I forgive others precisely because the Lord has forgiven me. I don't forgive the other person because that other person deserves it. I don't forgive the other person because that person will never sin against me again. No, I forgive because the Spirit of God lives within me. And I want to show others and prove to myself that He lives within me. As I forgive, I recognize two truths. First, I forgive knowing, again, that my brother, my sister, will sin against me again. Just like I will sin against my brother or sister in the future. And I will need the forgiveness as well. And second, I want to obey the Lord to show him that I love him. What did Jesus say about us? If you have my commandments and keep them, you show me that you love me. Ephesians 4.32 tells me that I am to forgive to the same level as God has forgiven me in Christ. That same level. And so our takeaway from this grace-filled passage is obvious. Repentance and forgiveness is key to the Lord's people. Yahweh declared it so. He will receive His people when they repent, and we are to do the same. So to close out this message, I want us to spend a moment in prayer. If you have avoided forgiving a person or persons who have wronged you, now is the time to get it right. Based on the awesome power of the Holy Spirit living within you, if you know Christ, if you're in the family of God, release that person. You give up your right for payback. So, what I'd like for you to do, but to pull out your bulletin on the back of your bulletin, there's a forgiveness pledge. I invite you to participate in this forgiveness pledge. So let's go through it together. Because the Lord has forgiven me all of my sins, and not because he or she or they deserve it, and knowing that he or she or they will sin against me again, I forgive, fill in the blank. Now, either with initials or no, don't put a name down or whatever. But you know, between you and the Lord, because you're confessing it to Him. I forgive this person, these people, of their sin against me. I continue to forgive, to show the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, and to obey the Lord's command to forgive as, and you have that highlighted there, as literally to the same degree that God in Christ forgave me in Ephesians 4, 32. Finally, let me reiterate what I said earlier. I am never more like Christ than when I forgive those who have wronged me. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, when he was being nailed to the cross, what did he say? Over and over again. So let's take a moment. And may the Lord do a work in your heart and mind as we release those who have sinned against us for Christ's sake. And then I'll pray in a moment. But take this time now. Lord Jesus, the nails that were driven in your hands and your feet were decorations, as it were, of forgiveness. You were going to hang 
from that cross. And in doing so, the Father was going to release us from the debt that we owe Him. Lord Jesus, when you were being murdered, you continued to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What a hellish thing that happened to you, but what a glorious thing as a result. Lord Jesus, you told us that we can forgive. We really can forgive because you've forgiven us. And if we cannot forgive, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to see exactly where we stand with you. Because forgiveness really is the foundation of our relationship with one another and especially of our relationship with you. Lord, we don't even come into your family unless we are forgiven. And so, Lord, as we heard today that you, through Moses, told your people to abstain from idolatry, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as well. Lord, so often in our world, we look at ourselves as gods and we want to make ourselves happy. We are the supreme standard by which everything is measured. But that's not your way, Lord. You told us that we are to to deny ourselves and take up our cross and to follow you. And that includes the very costly act of forgiveness. Because, Lord, when people sin against us, they owe us. And, Lord, when we sin against them, we owe them. But, Lord, you told us to cancel the debt because, Lord, you canceled the debt that we owe you. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to take these truths this very liberating truth, but very difficult truth. You'll seal it to our hearts. Help us to work with it, Lord, until everybody that we have sinned against and everybody sinned against us will indeed have debts canceled. May it be truly, Lord, our year of jubilee. And Lord, may we walk in the grace and forgiveness and the fullness of the Spirit because of this. So we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for these words. We thank you for the truth that's in your word. We now ask, Lord, as we turn our attention to the giving and to our singing, these are acts of worship. Help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name.